This is uh, Dr. Pedro Ramirez, Editor-in-Chief of the International Journal of Gynecological Cancer. Uh, today, I have the great pleasure of uh, having on the podcast uh, a good friend and colleague, uh, Dr. Nicolo Bizzari, who is at the Fundazione Policlinico Universitario Gemelli in Rome. And the reason for this podcast is his recent uh, publication in the January issue of the Green Journal, Obstetrics and Gynecology. And it is titled Association of Hospital Surgical Volume with Survival in Early Stage Cervical Cancer Treated with Radical Hysterectomy. Nico, welcome and thank you so much for participating in the podcast. Well, Pedro and uh, all uh, International Journal of Gynecological Cancer colleagues, it is for me a big, big honor to be here. And thank you. Thank you for featuring this article in the journal. It is really such a, an, an opportunity. Thank you again. Well, so of course, I think this is a this is a really relevant topic, and you know, certainly one that we want to uh, discuss in in some detail. Um, you know, certainly as it pertains to the issue of outcomes and and surgical volume. And I know that there's a lot being discussed with regards to uh, surgeons, surgical volume, and hospitals uh, volume as well. So I wanted to just start by, you know, certainly jumping into what we would call the heart of the question. Volume of a center is not really meaningful when considering that surgeon volume and number of surgeons per center, it's important to consider in this context. Um, also, the, the, the impact of, of the learning curve. So I just wanted to get your overviews as to how should our listeners um, look at this question of surgical volume in a, in a particular center? Well, uh, first of all, I would like to start thanking uh, uh, Professor David Sibula and the entire SCAN collaboration for uh, giving me and our team in Gemelli the opportunity uh, to perform this analysis. This was a, a, a sub-analysis of uh, the SCAN database, which looked at uh, uh, recurrence in uh, early stage cervical cancer. Uh, I, I fully agree with you uh, when uh, you say that the uh, uh, surgeon volume, number of surgeons, and learning curve are, are factors that really may have an impact on, on survival in early stage cervical cancer. The answer is never so easy and straightforward, as there are multiple factors and variables to be taken into account. Surely, surgeon volume and number of surgeons are factors that might have impact uh, on survival, as previously demonstrated by different studies, has uh, a main outcome of the present work. Unfortunately, we did not have such information in our study. Nevertheless, we might consider surgical volume per center as a surrogate of number of procedures per surgeon. Learning curve is another important factor that previously, a previous study also demonstrated impacting uh, on recurrence-free uh, survival. But again, we did not have information on learning curve in our database. Yeah, all uh, really important and relevant points. And as you said, you know, many times uh, many of the publications uh, really focus on uh, on that center volume as as a surrogate, um, but obviously needing to take into consideration the distribution per surgeon and the volume of, of those surgeons. So really very important and relevant uh, points to, to consider. Now, um, get, getting into some of the questions from our fellows, Anissa Mburu from Kenya. She's asking, uh, based on the new fecal classification of cervical cancer, 
um, the 2018 classification, and the fact that your data was collected between 2007 and 2016, uh, would this in any way impact the results of the study, particularly in upstaging some patients and thus impacting their disease-free survival and overall survival? Well, thank you for this question and thanks, Anisa. Uh, actually, uh, this is uh, well spotted because in our analysis, we used uh, FIGO 2009 classification. Uh, uh, and, uh, but since in our analysis, we excluded the lymph node positive patients, uh, I, we don't think that this might have an impact on the outcomes of the present study. Uh, of course, there, there would be an upstaging case of, of lymph node positivity, but uh, these patients were excluded up front. Great. And um, another question from Anissa, uh, Nico, is, you know, certainly some centers have uh, surgical oncologists, uh, laparoscopic surgeons, and or gynecologic oncologists performing radical hysterectomy. Um, do you have any sense uh, from from this study and this database? What was the, um, the 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 background of the surgeons that were involved performing these operations? Uh, any 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 information about their uh, level of skill or proficiency? And I think you alluded to a little bit about the no information on surgical volume um, per surgeon, uh, but just wanted to get your thoughts on that. Sure, sure. This is another important question referring to surgical proficiency of each surgeon. Unfortunately, this data was not known, but patients were all operated in selected tertiary referral centers for gynecologic oncology, and therefore surgeons should or should have been uh, recognized and certified as specialists in gynecologic oncologists, or nowadays, let's so-called subspecialist in gynecologic oncology. Okay, so great. Um, this is the, the background and actually the, the, the centers were targeted to be selected uh, when, when uh, there was uh, the scan collaborate, collaboration was developed. Great. So Nico, um, getting into the uh, getting into the results of uh, of the study, you know, certainly I think that you, you looked at over two thousand one hundred and fifty seven patients. Um, you identified seven and seventeen surgical procedures as low volume, middle volume, and, and high volume centers. And what you found was that surgical volume of the centers represented an independent pronostic factor affecting disease-free survival, and increasing the number of radical hysterectomies performed in each center every year was associated with an improvement in that disease-free survival. So, um, you know, certainly as we look at some of the details uh, with regards to the outcomes, how did the type of adjuvant treatment change in the in the different volume centers? Do you have any information about that? And uh, do you think that the type of adjuvant treatment uh, might impact uh, the outcomes based on the, the surgical volumes by center? Well, thanks a lot for this question. Uh, in most of centers, adjuvant treatment was given according to the national or international guidelines. In other centers, still in the collaboration, this was administered only in case of pathological high-risk factors, which were an exclusion criterion in this study. 
Uh, we have recently performed and published another sub-study, another study within this uh, SCAN collaboration, uh, uh, which uh, uh, was uh, looking at different patterns of adjuvant therapy administration and which impacts that adjuvant therapy could have had in the so-called intermediate uh, risk cervical cancer. And uh, uh, in these patients, we did found, find that adjuvant treatment did not have any impact in the survival uh, of these patients. So, um, of course, adjuvant treat, uh, therapy could, uh, could be different across, across different centers, but uh, uh, in our analysis and also in the multivariable analysis, uh, we never found that this ha could have an impact in patients with uh, nodes negative and parametria negative. Excellent. Um, this next question, uh, Nico, comes from uh, Jen Davis Oliveira. Um, and she, she asks, given the findings from the LAC trial, um, should you have excluded any other surgical approach than open approach? <laughs> well, thank you for this question. Actually, I was expecting a question on the LAC trial. And, um, you know, the SCAN study included patients uh, who were operated until 2016 before the LAC trial publication. For this reason, we also have the minimal invasive group in the cohort, and we decided to keep the surgical approach in the analysis and to perform a multiple multivariable regression analysis, which actually confirmed the negative survival impact of the minimal invasive approach. But of course, as multivariable analysis, this took into account different variables and, and it was adjusted. Uh, so we found that uh, the, the um, uh, surgical volume actually had an impact, just even counting the negative impact of the minimal invasive approach. Yes. Um, yeah, and, and I was actually uh, uh, quite uh, surprised at uh, the number of uh, open surgeries prior to the uh, publications uh, of the LAC trial in this uh, in this particular uh, cohort. Nico, this next question uh, comes from Italy, from Giulio uh, Bonaldo. Um, and he states, in, in your study, you define a minimum number of radical hysterectomies per year to consider a center as high volume. And I believe that was more than 17 surgical uh, procedures. Any comments about the minimum number of radical hysterectomies per year for a surgeon to consider him or herself an expert surgeon? Well, thank you. Thanks to Julio. This is a very interesting question. Unfortunately, we don't have this information, but uh, uh, we previously uh, published a study in our institution looking at actually the learning curve uh, in minimal invasive radical hysterectomy before the LAC trial. And uh, the number above which the recurrences start in, started decreasing significantly was 18. So starting with the 19th radical hysterectomy, uh, there was a decrease in number of recurrences. Uh, meaning that actually surgery matters in early, early cervical cancer prognosis. On the other hand, it is also important to maintain the surgical proficiency as there could be the case of a surgeon that performs a, la a large number of radical hysterectomies for a long time, but then it has to reduce them uh, because uh, of, uh, let's say, bureaucratic administrative uh, stuff that comes into his or her career and, and the surgical skill might skills might be impaired by this. So again, there are a lot of factors 
to be taken into account, of course. Yes, absolutely. Um, and um, Nico, this is a question again related to the classification of volume. Um, you know, as I mentioned before in, in, in this study, um, you classify low volume as fewer than seven radical hysterectomies per year, uh, middle volume as between seven and 17 radical hysterectomies per year, and high volume more than 17 radical hysterectomies. So the next question is from uh, Andrea Rosati, who you know well, <laughs> also at Gemelli. Uh -huh. um, and he asked, can you explain from a statistical and methodological point of view how the cutoffs of 7 and 17 radical hysterectomies were identified? Like, why 7, why 17? Um, tell us a little bit more about that. Well, thank, thank you and thanks to Andrea. Uh, this is a very interesting op opportunity to uh, dig a little bit into the methodology of this study. Uh, the optimal cutoffs uh, for surgical volume were identified using an unadjusted Cox proportional hazard model with disease-free survival as an outcome and uh, defined as uh, the value that minimized the p-value of the split in groups in terms of disease-free survival. Number uh, of radical hysterectomies uh, was counted as an average over the uh, entire study period uh, per center. In other words, to make it uh, uh, more simple, we identified uh, the, uh, num the median number, the average number per center per year of radical hysterectomy, uh, after which there was a, 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 ch a significant change in uh, survival, in particular in disease-free survival. And, and to get, thanks to this, we developed a, a curve uh, which showed us the two cutoffs. And these were significant. Very well. And again, uh, following up on that same theme of the, of the uh, number of radical hysterectomy, Jivansa uh, Koshiasvili from uh, Georgia, she wants to ask you, um, what strategies can be implemented to enhance the quality of care at low volume centers? that perform uh, fewer radical hysterectomies, you know, particularly in decentralized healthcare systems and or regions with uh, small populations? Well, this is an excellent question. Uh, in developed countries, centralization of uh, cervical cancer is more and more important, particularly in, in the future when screening and vaccination will hopefully reduce the number of cases. This will be important uh, uh, to maintain the surgical proficiency of gynecologic oncologists and to train the new generations. For those centers performing less than 17 radical hysterectomies, providing they will implement strategies uh, to centralize the cases, it will be probably important to reduce as much as possible the number of surgeons performing this surgery. Of course, it is much, much different in low-income countries where the burden of cervical cancer is still difficult to manage. Yeah. Um, now, again, following on the issue of centralization, um, you know, Giulio Bonaldo asks again, um, in countries where centralization is not mandatory, and frankly, that I think it means most countries, um, yeah. how can we promote the treatment of these malignancies and high volume institutions, considering that you're demonstrating that there's better outcomes in, in these institutions. 
Well, thank you. This is a great point. This is a great point. Surgical volume is a key factor, not only in cervical cancer, but also in other gynecologic malignancies. And we know this from different publications. The regional and national networks become crucial when it comes to the centralization of patients and the connections with the local hospitals, with the general practitioners, with the general gynecologists, it's very important to make sure that patients are referred to the, to the referral center in case a formal centralization system is lacking. And unfortunately, as you said, also in, in Europe, this is the, the case in many countries. Yeah, and then uh, I, I want to get back to that in a, in a few minutes. Um, but I wanted to ask you also in terms of um, is it just a radical? Is it just a surgery? Uh, Javansa Koshesvili asked, uh, would you expect a correlation between volume and, and quality of care to apply to other uh, medical procedures or interventions such as, you know, diagnostic evaluations? Is, is it a direct correlate as well? Yeah, that's a very interesting point. Uh, we believe that surgery in cervical cancer comes after patient selection, appropriate preoperative study of uh, pathology and, and imaging. Moreover, the access to modern imaging, including uh, expert ultrasound scan, uh, uh, modern MRI, uh, and that uh, intraoperative techniques, such as uh, sentinel lymph node um, mapping with ultrastaging, and uh, add further importance to the referral uh, center, which can have all the characteristics mating, which, which make the difference in quality of care of our patients with cervical cancer and not only cervical cancer. Yeah, and and um, Nico, this this next question kind of goes into the into the methodology a little bit with regards to the oncologic outcomes. Um, you know, in the study, you note that patients who underwent surgery in higher volume institutions had progressively better five-year disease-free survival than those who underwent surgery in low-volume centers. However, very important to highlight, there was no difference noted in five-year overall survival amongst the institution. So this next question uh, from Andrea Rosati, he says, although the three groups are not balanced by the propensity score matching, it's interesting to observe how in the multivariate Cox model, the surgically related factors, such as the number of radical hysterectomy and the open versus minimally invasive approach that are significant on progression-free survival lose their significance on overall survival. Otherwise, the tumor-related factors, which express the intrinsic aggressiveness of the tumor, maintain their independent prognostic impact on both progression-free and overall survival. Can you comment on this? Well, sure. Thanks. Uh, interesting point, actually. Uh, we did perform a, a, a propensity match analysis to balance the baseline characteristics of the three groups because we realized that, obviously, those uh, centers operating uh, um, uh, with a volume of more than 17 radical hysterectomies per year, they were doing actually more aggressive, let's say, tumors. So we tried to balance these characteristics, but still, uh, uh, from a statistical point of view, it was uh, uh, not possible to balance all, all the factors. And there were a couple of uh, uh, um, pathologic uh, variables which were actually still imbalanced, but uh, uh, they were imbalanced actually at, in favor of the low 
volume centers, and this is uh, uh, widely discussed in the discussion also. Uh, coming to uh, to your question, uh, thanks for raising this up. In our multivariable analysis, most of uh, tumor-related factors had an impact on overall survival. Despite the number of radical hysterectomy per year did not have such impact on, on overall survival, surgical approach had a borderline significance meaning that minimal invasive approach was detrimental on overall survival. This reflects indeed the need of further molecular and biological markers to better characterize tumors and hopefully make a difference with the potentially target therapies in overall survival for those patients who cannot benefit from salvage treatments at recurrence. In other words, we, uh, I mean, we can... Uh, 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 we specifically uh, concentrated, of course, on disease-free survival, but in the general picture, overall survival is really crucial, and uh, probably uh, the tumor bio biology is still making the difference for these patients. Yeah, <clears throat> and I think, again, it's important to highlight that in this patient population, early cervical cancer, the number of events of, of recurrence and deaths are, are low, so many times it, it may be challenging to you know, detect such differences. And, and you know, to, to the point that in, in this study, I believe it was 71.5% of patients underwent open radical hysterectomy. 91% of patients did not have any adjuvant treatment. After a medium follow-up of 5.2 years, um, there was only 9% recurrence rate 3.9% of patients uh, dying. So in other words, I think, you know, it's, again, it goes to that point of, uh, of the number of events uh, that, that, uh, that we're observing. So this next question is from Nuria Agusti from uh, Spain. And she notes, the lack of significant difference in overall survival uh, perhaps may be explained by the relatively low number of events in the included patients. Do you think given the relatively low incidence of deaths in early stage cervical cancer, would it be possible to demonstrate overall differences in, in overall survival in future studies? Well, thank you for, for raising this point. We believe that uh, uh, with only 3.9% of death events and the stratification of surgical volume in three groups, uh, there was a, a low number uh, uh, of, uh, of events to find the statistical significance. We did not perform a sample size calculation for a potential prospective study on this subject, but I believe that uh, the large number uh, of patients required to assess a potential overall survival difference would make such study difficult to design with overall survival as a primary endpoint. Yes, excellent. Um, now, this next question, uh, Nico, comes from Jen Davis-Oliver in the UK. Um, she she asks, uh, with, with a global view in mind, the highest burden of cervical cancer is experienced in low and middle-income countries, as you discussed before. Now, do you think the findings from this study can be extrapolated to, to those settings? In other words, do you think it's the same in, in these countries? Well, thank you, uh, and thanks to Jen for this question, actually. One, if we want to say limitation of the present study is represented by the fact that we included, uh, the most of the centers we included uh, are, are from developed countries. Uh, surely uh, the outcomes of this analysis could be 
could be transferred to low income countries, but I'm not familiar with the, the centralization system in, in these settings. So uh, it would require uh, uh, another, another analysis and another study. Yeah. Uh, so Nico, now this next question comes from Ryan Khan. He's, uh, he's a fellow at Memorial Sloan Kettering. And he says, you know, in the United States, most patients utilize what is called the U.S. News and World Report rankings when forming their opinions on hospitals, which doesn't include specific procedural volume among the many metrics that they measure. So is the data regarding treatment facility radical hysterectomy volume openly available for patients to access anywhere? And if not, what can we do to get this out there in order to allow patients to utilize this information when making a decision where to go have the surgery? <laughs> That's tricky. That's tricky, Ryan. Uh, it's, uh, it's an important perspective, though. I believe that it might be difficult to public, publicly share the information regarding the number of radical hysterectomies per year per center. Nevertheless, a surrogate of high surgical and treatment quality uh, could be represented by, for example, the ESGO quality indicators for cervical cancer. You know, ESGO, the European Society of Gynecologic Oncology, is uh, further working in this direction to make cervical cancer accreditation now be of the centers based on such quality indicators. And this could be, or we could think about uh, using this uh, tool to promote centers, uh, quality of care in cervical cancer treatment. Just, just a, uh, a thought, you know. Yeah, you know, and it's interesting because uh, when looking at your study, um, I noted that there are only 15% of centers were really uh, considered high volume centers. Um, so that means 85% of those centers uh, typically most likely would not um, be revealing that there were such low volume centers. Um, and, and certainly there will be a, a, a lack of enthusiasm for, for doing so. But in fact, they should, um, to Ryan's point. Now, another question from Ryan is, uh, based on a recent study in, in uh, medical care by Ellis et al. in 2020, the majority of patients in the United States valued both hospital reputation and primary care physicians' recommendations more so than patient outcomes. Why do you think this is, and what are ways to increase the value patients place on outcomes measures in the decision-making process when selecting a surgeon? Well, yeah, thanks uh, again for the question. Surely there are a number of outcomes that can be taken into account to select a provider. For, but I believe that survival together with quality of life should be the most important outcomes for our patients with gynecologic cancers, really. And once we obtain the best that we can on these two aspects, uh, it, it is uh, the first big, big step we could do for our patients. Yeah, Nico, and, and now I, I wanna close with a, a few questions regarding you know, actions and, and what steps uh, should, we, uh, should we take and the potential implications of that. Um, this uh, next question, uh, you know, uh, to me, it seems alarming that only 15% of centers are considered high volume centers. Um, how does this impact the suggestions that we should uh, refer all patients to high volume centers? In other words, logistically, um, is this feasible? 
that that patients from the other 85% of centers be referred to the 15% that are high volume centers. Well, thank you so much for this remark. I agree with you absolutely that uh, it is remarkable that only few centers perform more than 17 radical hysterectomies per year. And these were all able to make a statistical difference. This further highlights the need of centralization of cases, particularly in view of the fact that uh, cervical cancer will hopefully become more and more rare in the future and developed in developed countries. So uh, we need somehow to further develop the concept of centralization, even in these tertiary referral centers. So I think it's still uh, a a matter, uh, a subject which is a matter of discussion for future uh, generations in order to uh, direct the patients in, in the correct center. And now, Nico, you know, a question that some patients might have, and in fact, some physicians who are in low volume centers or, or middle volume centers might, might also argue, um, you know, high volume centers, uh, as you showed, were associated with improved progression free survival but not overall survival. So therefore, the question is, if there is no difference in overall survival, um, you know, some patients might say, well, why do I need to travel and, and go somewhere else when I, you know, overall what you're telling me is that the overall survival is no different. And equally, the surgeons in, in, in these low volume centers might say, well, it doesn't really matter. Uh, overall survival is the same. So why should I refer to a high volume center, what would you uh, what would you say to that? Well, we we discussed this a lot, this finding a lot with the, the other co-authors. Uh, the lack of overall survival difference might be due to low number of events, only three point nine percent of death, and by the fact that relapsed patients might have been referred to salvage surgery, uh, or, or like. Uh, pelvic exenteration or to salvage treatment with radiotherapy if there was a local recurrence. In this context, a recent study also showed that uh, pelvic exenteration volume has a survival impact, this confirming the role of surgical volume in the management of cervical cancer, even at relapse. So still, uh, despite there is no uh, clear signal in this precise study uh, in overall survival, we should uh, look at the general picture. Uh, and actually, I, I and we believe that uh, uh, the centralization really matters for surgery and for cervical cancer treatment, even at, at relapse. That's why probably uh, there was no difference in overall survival. So Nico, one last question I want to ask you, um, you know, certainly the better outcomes in high volume centers, um, certainly one might postulate that are likely due to the fact that high volume centers are more likely to follow NCCN guidelines or ESGO guidelines or what we call the standard of care. Uh, there may be better patient selection uh, through the process of patients being discussed prior to surgery. Uh, much better imaging modalities, much better pathology. Um, and one can say, well, it, you know, it's not really the surgery. It's just the fact that you're following all of the standard of care guidelines, more likely so in a high volume center, tertiary centers, than in low volume centers. So what are your thoughts on that? Well, absolutely agree. Absolutely agree that referral centers follow national and international guidelines 
uh, they have uh, uh, top quality pathology, top quality radiology, and it is all a combination of these factors that uh, could make the difference in patient survival. Uh, however, different studies have showed that surgical proficiency and surgeons' uh, quality uh, learning curve make a difference in, in patient survival, particularly on disease-free survival. Therefore, this, together with the results from our and other studies on surgical volume, uh, we believe that uh, uh, with this, surgery can make the difference for patients affected by, by cervical cancer and uh, uh, early stage, of course. And, uh, and of course, uh, the, the referral center is not just surgery, but uh, as I always been taught, gynecological oncology is not only surgery, but it is uh, a full, a full uh, taking care of patients at 360 degrees. Uh, where surgery is just uh, a, a little but important part. Fantastic. Nicolo Bizzari from Fondazione Policlinico Universitario Gemelli. Thank you so, so much for this uh, really excellent podcast. Uh, I learned a great deal um, in discussing this topic with you. Uh, once again, thank you for uh, accepting our invitation to doing this podcast and uh, congratulations to all of the uh, co-authors uh, of this uh, of this particular study, and uh, really looking forward to some additional great work from you. It's uh, really exciting to see you being so prolific and successful this early in your academic career, and uh, very proud to uh, have you uh, been uh, one of the uh, IJGC fellows. So thank you so much, Nico. Well, let me tell you. Just a couple of things and a couple of thanks. The first thanks go, goes to you, Pedro, and the journal, of course, because I believe that this uh, actual this work we are discussing today is coming from uh, what I learned during my editorial fellowship in the International Journal of Gynecological Cancer. And I want to be very clear on this because since then I, I really learned a lot on how uh, to write the medical paper, how to analyze methodology and how to develop uh, a study or uh, analyze in retrospective uh, uh, data. So I really thank you. Thank you. Uh, uh, this podcast should couldn't be here if it was not for you. Thank you and the journal. And on the other side, I want to thank uh, all David Sibul again, Dennis Kerler, uh, Professor Scambiana Fagotti from here from Gemelli, always supportive, and all the SCAN collaborators and the co-authors who really uh, were very helpful for developing this study. Uh, really, it was just a, a pleasure and I really enjoyed it a lot. Thank you. Thank you.